Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, we're getting back into the book of Judges, so I'm surprised. Uh, I shared with some of my pastor friends, some of my uh, Bible college professors, and, and now I've entered into a whole new status of legend uh, because I actually use the text that none of them, the only person I've met that's ever going to use the text I used last week in, in a public setting is Randy Garris. So i got a pat on the back for the guy saying, okay, wow, you did it. Like, that's amazing. How many of you were here last week and you know exactly what text I'm, I'm referring to? Be honest. How many of you were like, I had no idea that was in there. Wow. Okay? Surprised? Surprising, isn't it? And, and again, keep it in mind, I don't, my, my intent is... It is a shocking verse that God delivers, a scathing verse. And hopefully it caused you to go back and it's always important to read things in context. Uh, what I would tell you is that the context of a verse is everything. Anytime you ever hear somebody say the words, what this verse means to me, run through your very life, okay? Uh, because really it doesn't matter what the verse means to them. What it means is, what did it mean to the original audience? What did it mean to the author who wrote it? And so if you understand the context of that verse, in, uh, in Exodus, and we're not going to camp out there because we're talking about Judges. That's, it really is a powerful, powerful section of Scripture. And hopefully it intrigued some of you enough you went back and read a little bit more around it. Anybody do that? Like, i got to figure out what the context is on that. It, it really is, in spite of being, if, in my mind, other than the absolute massacre done to Jesus, in my mind it's, it's one of the most offensive things you'll find in all of Scripture. It really is. It's, I mean, I'm offended every time I read it. I'm like, that's offensive. Uh, and then I also hear the scripture where all scripture is beneficial. You know, and I'm like, wow, okay, all scripture is God breathed. I'm like, man, Lord, you put something like that in there. Like, you said that. That's what you think. Anybody else struggle with that a little bit? Yeah, I struggle with that. It's like, wow, His holiness that He would say something that's scathing. I mean, it sounds a little rough, doesn't it? If it sounds a little raw, doesn't it? It's like, oh, that's just bad. And then we see all Scripture is God breathed. And tonight, we're gonna we're not gonna live in that text. I promise you. Uh, again, you guys are adults. Uh, it, it's it's one of those scriptures I've wanted to bring out for all the years I've been in ministry, but I've never had a context where I felt like this is a safe place. If I can't bring a scripture like that up here, where can you bring it up? Uh, you guys are, are a group that wants to go a little bit deeper, and uh, man, that you got to get you got to get past the shock value of that text to recognize the depth of God's hurt. Does that make sense? And so, some of you right now, if you're like, "I don't know what we're talking about," we can dive into that later on. Uh, but I encourage you to go back and read Hosea. So let's kind of pick up in Judges, and tonight is all about expecting the unexpected. Fascinating text. We finally get to the actual Judges. About time. We've been living for a few weeks just trying to unpack the book. Some remarkable, mind-blowing stuff in this book. Uh, but we're going to do a little bit of collective study in here. And uh, if you take notes, this will be a great time for you, uh, you know, to, to kind of line out some stuff. Uh, here's the deal. I have no desire to turn this into some sort of an academia-type class. But I want to do some academic things because I think they're important. I think they're really in, in, you know, intriguing and interesting. And so we're going to kind of graph out something to even start this whole chapter. Because I think it's important. Let's start. We're going to look at chapter... We already read the beginning of chapter 3. And we saw uh, that verse that offended God. Uh, actually, it's in chapter 2. 
Uh, it says, therefore the Lord was very angry. Okay, now keep in mind that word very angry. Uh, we're going to see that again. Uh, where is that? We're going to see it again in this chapter. And i got to find out where that's at. Uh, where is that? Chapter 3. Somebody see it? We're talking about God being angry. I forgot to look at that verse. There it is. Uh, verse 8. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them. Interesting. Sold them. What does that imply? What's it imply? Slavery. Yeah, by slavery. You combine that with prostitution, which he's accused of being prostitutes. I want to tell you that within the biblical perspective, I am not here to bash versions of the Bible. I tend to use NIV. I like it. If you've got King, you know, King James, New American Standard, whatever you want to, whatever you want to use. I, I don't know what most of this room uses. And, and again, I'm not here to go. I, they're not all created equal. They're not all created the same. Each one's kind of got its nuance uh, between where is it, is it literal verse by verse, word by word, exact translation. Probably the closest you're going to get is probably maybe a New American Standard or, or an ESV. It's going to be more literal. You go all the way on this spectrum, and you're going to get something like the message, you know, or, you know, Amplified Bible or something like that, okay? And again, don't take pot shots. They all have their place. Even the message has got its place. I, half the time when I'm doing Bible study, I love to get the message and see the way Eugene Peterson unpacks it. However, in this text, there's going to be a few times where, how many of you guys are using NIV? Okay? So if you've got the literal word for word, and you've got this spectrum over here, which is Eugene Peterson, the message, NIV, in my opinion, kind of lands in the middle. Okay? It's why a lot of people like it. It's pretty literal, you know, a little more accurate than, than other Bibles, but it's also really readable. Make sense? You with me? So there's a verse in here, and even right now, it's really interesting. If you could go to the literal understanding of what it says in there, I find this fascinating. Uh, and I'm going to ask you guys a comment. Like, if I read it that way, what does it mean to you? <laughs> what does it mean to you? I just did what I said not to do. Uh, it says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. What that means is God's nose was hot. Okay? Now, anytime, oh, what's, the, uh, what's the word where you take physical traits and project them? There's a term for that. Anybody know what? Somebody here, uh, an English major, uh, anytime you do that in poetry, you do anything else where you project uh, you know, physical attributes on inanimate in Huh? Personification would be a great way to look at it. There's another term for that, but that, that'll nail it. Personification. Hey, you said, what was it? Yeah, anthropomorphic. This is one of those times in scriptures where you get that anthropomorphic uh, view of God. Okay? So yeah, personification, same general genre. This is one of those. Where like, does God really have a nose? Well, I don't know. We like to think he is because, you know, we're, we're told we're created in the image of God. Therefore, God's going to have two eyes, two ears, a nose, and, you know, ten fingers, ten toes. You know, he's got to clip his fingernails just like we do. But the other side of it, I think we're like, nah. No, I mean, God has a nose. But here it says his nose burned hot. What do you think of when you hear God's nose burns hot? Isn't that a weird thing? His nose burned hot. What, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Pungent. Huh? Pungent? Okay, yeah. All right. How many of you guys have children? Are you taking Have you ever done this? You ever done that? You ever had that? And it's about, a fury's about to come. My kids know, my wife knows, if she hears me sigh, I've got different types of sighs. How many of you wives have husbands who have different types of sighs? And they're all varying degrees of sighs. Some sighs are, you know, innocuous or no big deals. Other sighs are like, uh-oh, here it comes. You know, and at this moment, when God's nose burns hot, you know, the way I view that is God goes, 
And he's about to, he's taking that deep breath, his nose burns hot, and he is about to unleash, is what that means. Okay? So let's get into this text a little bit. Uh, before we get into, we're going to pick up verse 7. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, at the very top of that, you got a name called Othniel. Alright? So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down some of these. If not, I'm going to give out some verses. We're going to, we're going to go through this methodically because I think it's important to establish something. I want you guys to learn some cool things here. This is fascinating. All right, here we go. Um, somebody go ahead and take chapter 3, verse 7. Who's got that? Somebody got that one? Just in your group, say, I got it. Okay? I'm going to get six verses. I need somebody to take chapter 3, verse 12. Who's got it? Okay, and I need somebody to take chapter 4, verse 1. Somebody got it? Say, I got it. Okay, now some of you guys don't have six at your table. You need to take a couple of them. Did somebody call out at your group? Call out 6-1. Who's got it? 6-1. Somebody got it at your table? Then at your table, somebody take 10 verse 6. Somebody got it? Okay. Last one, 13 verse 1. Somebody call it out and say, I got it. Okay, they go through them again. 3-7. Somebody got it? 3-12. Somebody have it? 4-1. Somebody have it? 6-1. Somebody got it? 10-6. Somebody have it? And then finally 13-1. Alright, go through those. Find the common denominator. Okay? Go ahead. Write down the common denominator. Yeah, we're about to get He's like, I just got you out of this land. 
I just gave you this promised land. You're not doing what I say. And he knows the way this thing unveils. He knows it unveils when his son died on the cross. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. When his nose burns hot, it's because he can literally see in the future his son giving his life for what's taking place right now. It did Eve. Now, I don't know about you, but at times that is my story. Maybe you are the walking, you know, essence of perfection. I am not. But I can tell you, there are times where it's like, if you were to go through and chart out my life, sometimes by the hour, uh, but usually by, by the year, it's like, man, I'm doing really well, and I feel like things going right, and then boom, I do evil. Ah, man. Ah. You ever find yourself in a pattern where you just can go back and look at your life and think, man, I keep, it's kind of like you know, what Solomon says, as a, ta- as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. And, and I think as we look at these Israelites and think, you stupid Israelites, let's not be cruel. Let's admit that we probably have more common with them than, than, they, than we want to admit. And keep in mind, the danger of the Israelites isn't that they turn their back on God. Is that the problem here? It's really not, is it? What's the problem here? Idolatry. They want to bring in idolatry. It's not that they said no to God. It's that they said yes to everything else. And I'll tell you, if you want to dive into the theology of that, <laughs> sorry, Thank you. If you want to dive into theology of that, I think that's the biggest problem we face in our Christian life is and. We want God and. That, that is our biggest mess, man. We want God and. We want God, you know, we want to live this Christian life and we want to kind of do this on the side. We want to have, you know, this attitude toward God and everything else and we want to dabble over here just a little bit. And so we struggle with holy committed to Jesus and the idolatry that Paul mentions of greed. And so I think that our tension, our understanding of these people is not that uncommon. I think we struggle with some of the same stuff. It's not that they ever rejected God. It's, it's the end that got them in trouble. I think if we were to sit down and be completely honest and just lower inhibitions, which we're not going to do in here, I know, and just say, you know what? Here's the truth. And is what, what kicks my rear every time is it's Jesus' hand. Jesus' hand. It's all of the ends that I want to add on to this. That's what eats me, eats me alive. I want to worship God. And I want to kind of have this bad attitude. I want to worship God, and I want to be selfish. I want to worship God, and I want to look at things I shouldn't look at. I want to worship God, and I want to lust. I want to worship God, and I want to be a crooked business you know, woman, a crooked, crooked businessman. I want to worship God, and I want... it's the ends that kills. And that's what we got right now. Right now with the, with, with the judges, or sorry, right now with the, with the Israelites, it's and. Kill them. All right, let's look at something else. What happens next? So you can walk through that first verse is Othniel. Okay, second verse is Ehud. Second verse you read was about Deborah. Then we look at Jephthah. We look at Samson. Let's look what happens next, all right? Um, somebody in your group take 3.8. You got it? Somebody take 3.12. You got it? Somebody take 4.2. You have it? Somebody claim 6.1. Somebody take 6.1. Got it? Two more. Somebody take 10.7. Got it? Last one. Can somebody take 13.1. Got them? Let me read through one more time. Somebody claim them. Somebody got 
what I can and can't do with my money. And again, money's an easy one to pick on. And we could go to everything from addiction to pornography to, man, you name it. There are a million things we can talk about in here. But man, I think we realize that sin leads to slavery. Okay, let's keep doing this because I'm going to walk those patterns. It's going to be important to take time to set this up. Um, let's do this. Uh, let's look up. Somebody take 3-9. All right? Somebody take 3-15. Somebody got that? Somebody take 4-3. Somebody take 6-7. And somebody take 10-10. And by the way, we paid off our debt. We're debt free. But I didn't know. We cried out to the Lord. We're coming to this Say about sin. 
What's First John say about sin? Anybody remember? If we are conf- if we're faithful and what we confess, okay. I think there's a part of this when it comes to repentance. There's this issue in our life is sometimes you want to let go. You know, well, God, I shouldn't have done that, and, and God, I know I did the wrong thing, and you know, God, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And we keep kind of living to God. I feel really bad about what I did. At some point, that's just not enough. It's just not enough to keep telling God how bad you feel what you did. There really is this tangible point where you need to confess and say, God, I did wrong. Will you what? Help me. I can't get myself out of this mess. And that's where the Israelites find themselves. It's not enough to feel bad about your sin. It's not enough to feel bad for me to feel bad about things I've done. At some point, I'd say, God, in humility like a child, I need your help. I can't fix this mess. And that's where they are. All right, let's look at one more here. Um, look up. Uh, we're going to look at two verses this time. Somebody take uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Actually, somebody take chapter 2, verse 16 and 18. Who's got chapter 2, verse 16? Somebody take 18. We're going to get four verses. Somebody take 3, verse 9. And then somebody look up uh, 3, verse 15. Okay, go ahead and read those. salvation, if you understand who He is, it's not just this, yeah, we are saved. Yes, I understand we're, we're saved by Him, but for me, it is a constant, continual act of salvation in my life. Yes, I understand the issue of eternity, but He continues to save. Does that make sense? And, and I think you're going to find in Judges this pattern of He continues to save. He continues to rescue. And, and what I love about Jesus is His resurrection <laughs> doesn't just resurrect me once. It resurrects me daily. It brings me to life daily. 
And I love that about the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's not to diminish, you know, when I'm baptized in Him and I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to diminish that moment. What I'm trying to say is that, man, as you walk in Him, that salvation is a new, beautiful thing that comes daily. And, uh, and, and the beautiful thing is that, you know, His death continues to cover our sin. His death continues to cover our, our mistakes. And what a beautiful, beautiful, graceful thing in Jesus. And, and, yeah, that forgiveness is just glorious. And what you'll find here is that he continues to offer his people salvation over and over and over and over. What a, what a gorgeous thing. Because I, I am, as Paul says, chief of sinners. Uh, yet my Jesus resurrects me every day from the midst of my world of stupidity. And what a, what a great God is there. And that's the story here is that if you learn anything from judges, is never believe your sin can separate you from God. I mean, if he's going to re- rescue this stiff-necked people over and over, then there's hope for all of us. That's the great thing about Judges. All right, we'll look at one more, and uh, because I can't leave it here, let's look at. Oh, I got our salvation, um, and then we know. We'll cause time out real quick. That's the cycle of Judges we've talked about. What I felt like is I had unpacked that. I showed that to you several times, but I've never really let you see the pattern for yourself. So instead of me just reading it and illustrating it, I wanted you guys to go. Oh yeah, 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 that's there. I got it. I, I understand it. If you get this right here, you get Judges. And honestly, if you get this right here, you get you. You start understanding yourself. And my question for you is, if you could pick a place where you are on this, where are you now? Where are you at right now? I think I'm right about here right now. Or maybe, maybe you're like, I'm right here. Man, I've got a long way to go. Okay? <laughs> i got work to do. This is going to stink. All right, here we go. Uh, last one we'll look at. Um, let's look at... Judges 3.10 and 3.28. And then we'll take a... We'll, we'll, we'll shift this for a minute. And get into the actual characters. He defeats this enemy. Now, granted, there are still wars we fight every day. We know that that 1 Peter is clear that we have a raging lion seeking who may devour. We know that we're given the armor of God because of an enemy that wants to attack. We understand all that. But thanks be to God, through Christ the Lord, that we now have power 
through Jesus Christ. You know, there's no condemnation for those of us who live in Him because He's destroyed death and He's destroyed our enemy. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And the same way He will crush every one of these oppressors, He will crush your oppressor. Keep in mind, in all of this, as Satan takes you on this journey, your God will crush him. You may cry out because of your sin. You may go into slavery because you get taken captive. You may find your place in the sorrow and supplication, but I guarantee you every day salvation is coming and the day of conquering is already occurred. But if you want to know how the story ends, turn to Revelation. Our God wins and He crushes Satan under your feet. And I'm telling you, the same way He delivers judges, He has, will, and always will deliver you. He wipes out your enemy. So even on those dark days, the judges win. Because the ultimate judge is defeated the ultimate enemy. Make sense? Yeah. You with me? Sometimes you can't say amen. Here we go. Let's get into the actual characters. You ready? All this time, all this talking, it's like, good night. This guy ever get the actual judges. Othniel. We already heard about Othniel. Who is he? Might even remember? Who's Othniel? Huh? Yeah? Yeah, Caleb's younger brother. It gets a little bit dicey. That's where I'm at. You can actually, if you understand the Hebrew, it's either Caleb's nephew or Caleb's younger brother. You don't really know exactly one. And honestly, there's not really much, you know, fighting words over, over which one it is. We just should, you know, that you know, he could be like a little kid nephew. You know, maybe if some of you guys are an older uncle and, and you got a nephew you're really close to, it could be something like that. Or literally maybe Caleb's, Caleb's little brother. Who's Caleb? He's one of the guys that goes in with Joshua to say we can take the land. Okay, big name, big dude, important. We also know that, who, what else do we know about Othniel? We've already met him once. What did Othniel do? All right, important town. What town was it? Go back, where was it, chapter one we read about him? Let's go chapter one, let's go back, let's look at it. It's important. Uh, here it is. It says, one day when she, uh, oh, I missed that part. Uh, let's move up to verse 8. Yeah, there you go. You found out what verse? I don't know. I got my notes. You do have your notes. You nailed it, though. Verse 10. Verse 10. There it is. Uh, thank you. They advanced against the Canaanites, living in Hebron, for me called Kareth Abba. They defeated Shishai, those three guys. Yeah, yeah. They advanced against the people living in Deber. And Caleb said, I'll give my daughter in marriage to the man who captures that city. And Othil sent a Kenaz, Kenaz's younger brother, took it. And we understood that that city was an important city. You know, that's where great-grandma Sarah's buried, Abram's buried, you know, all these great patriarchs are buried. We know that Othniel is, he's a tough guy. If, if Othniel walks in this room, we all cower in fear. I mean, Othniel is just, he's a, he's a soldier. You know, if you were to meet him, he's going to be a guy with battle wounds on him. He's going to make the crossfitters look like they can't keep up. That's who Othniel is. Okay, Othniel is just, he's lethal. He's a lethal, lethal man. Now wait till we get to Shamgar here in a little bit. It says, the only said these are evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. I forgot is not like we might think of, of forget. Okay? Um, the word remember the Lord your God is important all through the Old Testament. Okay? The Lord used that all the time. Uh, they will say things like, remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember, remember not our sins. Uh, you'll hear that all through the Psalms. You'll hear it you know, throughout, throughout the, you know, the early books of the Old Testament. You'll hear that phrase. The, the issue isn't that somehow their brains were like, oh, I forgot there's a God. No, 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 no. It means they didn't acknowledge it. Okay? It's kind of like saying that, you know, man, I forgot to show love to my wife. But did I forget who my wife was? No. I'm not an idiot. Well, stupid at times. I'm not an idiot. I remember who my wife was. I just forgot to show love to her. Like, man, I forgot. I forgot about it. I forgot her. Okay? It's like, 
all right, it's not that as a husband I literally forgot who I was married to. I just got self-absorbed in my own dimension. I got self-absorbed in my own issues, and then I forgot. Okay? Um, you know, whether you forget the anniversary or you forget to show love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentle self-control, there are times in our life when we, we forget. In this moment, they just forgot God. They forgot to acknowledge Him. They forgot to show Him love. They tried to have Jesus, our God, in. It says, uh, the anger of the Lord, what does that mean? His nose burned hot. Burned against the Israelites so that he sold them to the hands of Cushon Rishathaim. I already say that. I don't even know. Don't even act like I pronounce it carefully. I can tell you the name means something interesting. It means doubly wicked. Okay? Now, here's something that is really intriguing. And I don't even know how to unpack this so you get excited as I do. It says, the king of Aram, Narim, how you say it, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Here's the deal. If you understand that spectrum, and I don't have a map up here to show you. This guy is doubly wicked, and out of every single person they're going to meet throughout the book of Judges, this guy probably controls more landmass than any other king they're going to face. He covers basically the whole spectrum. Because here's the deal. He's all the way down to the bottom of, a, of your Bible map, okay, as you look at the promised land. That's where Othniel starts fighting. This guy owns all the way to the top. So Othniel takes on, at the very beginning, somebody controls a whole lot of territory. I don't think what God's trying to say is, look, I gave him into your hands. He owned it all in your mindset. And later on, they're going to fight with these little bitty kings or little bitty parts here and there. They're going to fight over smaller territories. But from the very beginning, God said, I told you, Lord, I gave you the guy that owned your whole land into your hands. And guess what? They still won't push him out. They still won't push him out. And, and I think God's someone's like, are you all out of your minds? I mean, I took the most powerful army on the face of the planet and I crushed them in the sea. And you grumble within a few days. And now here we are. I give you these cities. I tell you I'll fight for you. And you won't finish the job. So one more time. Let me show you something. From the very bottom to the very top of the mountain. I'm going to defeat the most powerful king. That will, he'll be doubly wicked. Doubly wicked is what his name means. I'm going I'm to wipe him out. I'm going to give him into your hands. And guess what? They go right back in the same old junk they did before. And here's the bottom line. Sometimes we can look at our life and remember a time when God blessed you so much. Maybe you were younger. God did something amazing. Can you remember those times where you were like, thank you, God, man. I don't know what it was. Maybe there was a sickness in your family and God provided healing. Maybe there was a problem, a crisis in your family and God provided deliverance. Maybe a check showed up in the mail right when he needed to show up and you praised God through and through. You celebrated Maybe, you know, you saw death come back to life. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be a moment in our life where we celebrated God's deliverance. You ever had that? You ever forgot that? You ever got where it's a week, a month, a year passed? It's like, oh, yeah. Forgot about that, didn't I? Ah, oh, man. I remember that day where God did something huge. He worked a miracle. And all of a sudden, you kind of forget, don't you? Well, welcome, Judges. Here we go. <laughs> it says, when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. All right, that's intriguing. It's the first time you're really going to see this. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You understand something? You have something special. You have something that David did not have. Solomon did not have. You understand that even David didn't have the Holy Spirit residing inside of him. <coughs> you know that, right? Abraham didn't get that. Abraham never had the Holy Spirit. Never was given to him. 
You have something that honestly the patriarchs of old would have given their lives to have. And we carry it inside of us every day. The same spirit of God that delivers the deadly wicked is the same spirit that resides in you. And in Judges, it just comes on. It just comes on. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? It comes in us. This is the spirit that hovers over the waters, that pulls up the Alps, that pulls up the oceans, that pulls up the giraffe and gives its neck. This is the spirit that hovers over the water when he says, let there be light, there's light. When he says, let there be earth, there's earth. This is the spirit that hovers over Genesis 1.1. This is the spirit that says, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit we just referenced is the Holy Spirit that resides in you. You have something that the men and women of the Old Testament would have, could only dream of. And you carry it in you every day when you walk into the hospital or your business or wherever it is you go. When you walk in your home, when you walk into this room, when it says the Spirit of God came on him, it's on you right now. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. Do you know what Moses would have given, what Joshua would have given to have that spirit not just come on them in power, but within them and exude power? Man, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let his power be unleashed in you. This is a bold statement. Usually when the Holy Spirit comes on these guys, it, it usually comes in some sort of divine physical attribute most of the time, or some divine insight or understanding. We'll keep reading. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that we became Israel's judge, he went to war. The Lord gave the doubly wicked king of Aram into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, so the land had peace for 40 years, until Othniel, son of Kenes, died. There you go. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Eyes of the Lord. Uh, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Uh, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of, Paul, of, of, uh, of Palms. You know what that city is? Oh, this is just not right, man. Did your Bible say what the city of Palms is? Yeah, somebody said it's not Jerusalem, somebody said it. It's Jericho for crying out loud. I thought, I love Jericho, Jericho. Remember the song? And the walls came tumbling down. What in the world? They're back. They just rebuilt Jericho? Yep. 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 We're taking back God's story. We're taking it away from the Israelites. So he goes back to the city of Jericho. It says, The Israelites were subject to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Now, we have mentioned some names here. And do I have time to do it? No, I do not. Because uh, I wasted time in other areas. Ammonites, Malachites, and Moabites. A uh, couple of these, Ammonites and Moabites, they are descendants of somebody. Okay? And it's interesting. Because, again, I go on these little tangents that I think are kind of cool. They're just made just cool to me. Their daddy, great-granddaddy at some point, is a guy named Lot. Alright? Remember who Lot is? Who's Lot? Abraham's nephew. So now you think about it. The people that are now ruling over them. That's like going to your family reunion. And some distant relative is now lording over you. These aren't just some random race of people out here that just kind of showed up out of nowhere. No, these are their distant cousins. These are people that they know. They're connected all the way back to when Abraham and Lot, or you know, that whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, we talked about that a few weeks ago. This is the same guy, okay? And it's his descendants that are now oppressing them. 
Now, this gets me. Okay, the next story I'm going to tell you is disgusting. So if you are having a, have a sensitive stomach, I told you this book's rated R. It's about to get nasty. It says, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. All right, I've got to talk about that. Okay? Interesting thing. Benjamin. It says uh, he's a son of Gera the Benjamite. Okay? Benjamin means son of my right hand. All right, so it's always interesting that automatically, son of my right hand, here's a guy that's left-handed. Again, NIV doesn't handle this text exactly right. Who here's got a different translation? May I ask them to emphasize the NIV? What do you have? ESV. What's the ESV say? Um, I think it might nail it. Just 15? Uh, yeah, I shouldn't know that right off my head. Um, yeah, yeah, read verse, uh, yeah, read verse 15. Okay. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. No, it doesn't do it But who's got something different? Anybody else got another translation? There's one translation that does it well. What's King James say? Curious. It says, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. He had the son of Gera, Benjamin, the left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to the table on the Okay, I can't what translation it is, but if you understand the Hebrew of this, um, anybody here left-handed? Who's left-handed man? Okay, left-handed people in here? He had your man. He hugged your man. However, we don't have a full context. And this is one of those moments where when you dive into the text, you dive into Hebrew language, it starts getting treated. It's not just that he's left-handed. What it means is, and the Hebrew means, he only has the use of his left hand. All right. Now, what do you hear? I had another one that said that he had the use of both. That he used either hand as well as his right. Yeah. There's some of the Benjamites where they talk about they can swing their left or right. Most scholars will say they said that he did not have the use of his right hand, but there are some that say both. Typical theologians will say he couldn't use his right hand. He had only he only used his left hand. Okay? So was he a thief? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily that. It could be. Maybe he's got his hand chopped off. What a lot listen, we're gonna go into we're gonna kinda expound on the story here. There's a lot of people say that he probably either maybe lost his right hand, maybe it was crippled, maybe it was maimed, we don't really know. You have to think about it. If you would have, if you would have shattered an arm, you know, at a young age, you don't have doctors to put pins and all that kind of stuff in it. We don't know what the story is, but for some reason, what we know is most of the time it says, you know, if you understand the Hebrew wording there, it means that he could only use his left hand. So I don't know what the story is, but for some reason, this is an interesting nuance. They rarely bring this stuff out. The writer's trying to make a point. Regardless of what the backstory is on Ehud, this doesn't happen very often. Okay, now we do know the Benjamites were known, some of them being ambidextrous. They could, you know, fight with either hand. So he's doing something here. There's a point he's trying to make to the fact that Ehud could only use his left hand. We'll keep on reading. It says, The Israelites sent him with tribute uh, to Eglon, king of Moab. Tribute was, he was just taking the money, like paying them off. Paying off king of Moab. It says, Now Ehud <coughs> had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh underneath his clothing. Okay, so you get a picture. You get a sword about that long, a dagger, double-edged. He has strapped it inside his thigh, right here. Okay, now I don't know. I'm trying to figure out point up, point down, how to draw it. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like, hey. But like, most times you put it on your hip, you know. Uh, you, 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 and, and think about it. If you are right-handed and you want your sword quickly... You know, fellas, think about it. If you're right-handed, you want to draw your sword quickly, which side of your body are you going to be on? Left side. You don't want your left side. 
you want it out. It's on your right side, you're like, so typically, if you want it, you're out and fighting. Okay? So he takes his sword and he or his dagger and he straps it to the inside of his thigh. Okay? Double-edged. Alright, it's about to get interesting. Who's never heard the story before? You ain't never heard the story? I love the story. It's awesome. It's so gross. Alright, here we go. It's fun. It says he presented the tribute to the king of Moab, who was a very fat man. <laughs> wow. I mean, I love the Bible. What a, what a great thing. I, I just wonder what Samuel felt as he wrote this. He was a very fat man. And, and, and so you need to, it doesn't say he's fat. It, it says he's very fat. Uh, moving on. And, and I want to pull something out of this text later on. It's interesting. He presented the tribute to the king of Eglon and Moab, who was a very fat man. After he had presented the tribute, um, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, okay, now wait a second. He turned back and said, whoa, 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 stop. Play the movie. You're Ehud. You strap the sword to your thigh. You walk in with a tribute. Now, I, I'm a big fan. I love things like James Bond, all the Jason Bourne movies. I mean, I can eat those things up all day long. They're awesome. Go into assassin mode right now. If you are going to be the assassin and you want to kill a fat man, Okay? It's, it is a Bond movie. Okay? Bond's going in to kill a fat man. It's like, ah, wow. Goldfinger, next thing, no sequel, fat man. He's going to kill him. Think about it. What are you doing the whole time? The whole time you're walking up, what are you doing? Yeah, you're casing him. Everything out, the whole way up. You're looking at exits and entrances. You're, you're looking at the different guards as you're walking around. And all of a sudden, the whole time, what are you looking for? Opportunity. 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 You have made the sword yourself. That's calculated. I mean, this is full-on premeditated murder he's going about. He's made the sword. He's fastened it to his hilt. He's trying to figure out, how am I going to draw this thing without getting noticed? Because you know when you're going to see this king, most people have their swords everything on the outside. He's hidden it. He's strapped it to his thigh where no one will see it. He's got a hidden weapon right inside his thigh. And the whole time, i got to figure out I'm going to kill him. i got to figure out I'm going to kill him. i got to figure out a way to kill him. And what do you think he feels? Look at it. It says, after he had presented the tribute... Uh, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, what it implies is that, remember Gilgal is an important town we talked about earlier. Gilgal is an important city. Remember that's where the angel shows up. At Gilgal, he turns around and goes back. He had to feel like, I didn't get it done. I think, I think he was like, oh, I had the chance. I should have killed him, man. I couldn't get it done. I mean, I wonder what he's thinking all the way from meeting this king, all the way to Gilgal. You know, every step he can feel that, 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 that dagger rubbing against his thigh. And imagine every step he's getting more and more mad about, I should have done this, I could have done this. And so all of a sudden he's like, I'm not letting this go. I'm going back to kill the fat man, is what he says. He turns around and he goes back. He says, uh, and at the out of the gear guy, he turns back and he goes back to the king and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. All right? A lot of people think that the king, because he can only use his left hand, a lot of people think the king wasn't threatened by it. Most soldiers, most people would have fought with the right hands. It just would have been typical. They said, the probably wasn't threatened by it. Uh, there's people, some commentators even uh, suppose that Ehud might have been handicapped. They said that you wouldn't, never, he would not have expected it. This would have told something totally unexpected. This guy coming all the way back to give him a secret message. And it says, the king said, quiet, and all of his attendants left him. Now listen, let the movie play out. Picture Jabba the Hutt on the throne, okay? <coughs> Fat man on the throne, Ehud walks back in, 
I like the picture as if he can't use his right hand. He's, you know, maybe it's made, maybe it's broke, I don't know. He walks in the left hand and he says, okay, I've got a secret for you. He's like, everybody out, get out of here. Who knows what he's going to say. And then Ehud approaches Eglon. Here it goes. Then Ehud approached Eglon. Uh, uh, Ehud then approached him as he was sitting alone in the upper room of the summer palace. Upper room would have been an area with lots of airflow to come through so you don't get all hot. Okay? Um, so you get a fat guy up there sweating. It says, it says, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, which had to be at work, Ehud reached with his left hand and he drew the sword. Alright? I don't know how to picture that. I don't know what that looks like. But somehow, he reaches down with his left hand. He draws this dagger that's actually kind of long. I mean, it's a foot and a half long. 16 cubits long. It's long. Okay? No, not, not like a little bitty like knife. Okay, knife. This is a this is a good sized dagger this guy's got. He pulls this thing out. Watch what happens. He says, I have a message for your king. As the king rose with seat, he had to reach with his left hand, drew a sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Oh, it gets better. No, it gets worse. He plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. No. <laughs> so this, this dagger sinks into his fat, absorbs it. Isn't the Bible awesome? <laughs> the Bible is amazing. These are great stories. I know it's gross, but what a great text. We're like, oh, the Bible's boring. Like, where do you live? This is a fascinating story. This is not boring. It's mind-blowing. And the details get even better. Keep going. It says, even the handle sinking after the blade. It just covers the blade. It says, um, Ehud did not pull the sword back out. I love that. <laughs> like, uh, you got it. That's what I picture. I picture him going, I made that, but I don't want it anymore. All right. It says, Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Disgusting. Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors the other behind him and locked them. Dude, he is Jason Paul. Okay, he is James Bond. Just totally calm, cool, collected. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> he kind of walks out, shuts the door, locks him, tips his hat to the guards. I'm going to head on back. Gave the king a secret. It says, after he... <laughs> this next part is awesome. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors to the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the upper... Uh, <laughs> in the inner room of the house. Okay. Do you understand what relieving himself is? They think he's taking a... I don't mean how to be crass. He's, he's going to poop. Okay? They think he's on the toilet. Okay? And let me tell you why they think that. Because the Bible's amazing. The Bible's awesome. Okay? They waited to the point of embarrassment. Okay? Now, I have a 16-year-old son. I know what that means. Um, they waited to the point of embarrassment... But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the king and locked them, and they saw the Lord fall on the floor dead. Here's the deal. The reason why commentators will say that they think he's relieving himself, anybody want to guess why? That he had stabbed him so far through, he had to rupture the bowels and fecal matters pouring out of his back. And they could smell, and they think, oh, he must be pooping in there. I think the Bible is spectacular. I'm telling you, man, 
What a great text. This stuff should be a movie for crying out loud. Fat man dies. Excrement falls out his back. James Bond shuts the door. Peace out. I'm on my way. These guys, you see all the guards? Can you imagine what you'd be doing if you're watching this movie? The guards are like, well, he must be going to the bathroom. He's just waiting. You have no idea. No, the fat man's dead. He's gone. He takes off. What a great, mind-blowing story. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, uh, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, <laughs> your relative, into your hands. So they followed him down, taking possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab, and allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. What a story. What a cool story. And I think, if anything, what I want you to recognize, um, actually, let me, let me hit Shandar for it. I kind of hit a point of application before we land and say. We're, we're going to hit Shandar. Shandar does not get a lot of shout out. Okay? Shandar is short, but Shandar is awesome. Uh, and then I want to kind of land a point of application. I want us all to talk about it collectively. Shandar. He, he really only gets this one verse. But in this one verse, is packed a lot of punch. Alright? It says, And he, after Ehud, came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Okay? And then it says, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, so the Lord sold them in the hands of Jabin, gave Canaan, and then coming up, you're going to have Deborah. She's amazing. We've got another violent story on the way. <laughs> More great things to come. But let's talk a little bit about Shamgar. A couple of things I want to pull out of that that are interesting. Um, that name, Shamgar, son of Anath, is power-packed. That is not an Israelite name. Implications. Not an Israelite name. Implications. What do think of that? What's your gut when you hear that? Hey, wait, wait. Shamgar's not an Israelite. Son of Anath. Son of Anath. Uh, even that name. I'm trying to remember what I wrote down. I take all these notes and I never get a chance to look at them. Um, yeah, yeah, right. It's, um, it's actually, I know it's a Philistine name, but I want to talk about what, what Anath means. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Anath suggests that he might have been, oh, Anath was, was a Canaanite goddess. That's what it was. Uh, he is named after a Canaanite goddess. I think it's interesting right now that God is about to use a Philistine who's a son of a Canaanite goddess to kill 600 Philistines. Interesting. He's about to use somebody who is not even truly an Israelite. My, if I'm going to give you my opinion, I think it's a whole thing in America. I think he's probably part Hebrew, part Israelite, maybe not full. We know his name is not an Israelite name. That's all we really know about him. And he kills him with an ox goat. Now keep in mind, we don't know the text. Uh, immediately, we picture this guy killing 600 men, you know, in some Matrix type. If you ever watch the movie Matrix, you know, some slow motion move where he's just like people dying left and right. No, wait, wait, wait. We don't know. Don't don't make the text say what it doesn't say. He may have killed 600 men over a period of 50 years. We we don't know how long it took him to kill those 600. We don't know the story behind it. We just know he killed 600 men with an ox goat. Anybody know what an ox goat is? Yeah, would have been. 
Yep, would have been about probably eight to ten feet long. Would have been a rod. Would have had a really sharp point or a hook at the end that you would have used to kind of move animals around. And so basically, this guy takes some weapons of the day, and you know, we read one story of a guy killing a fat man. Your next story is 600 people slaughtered, is what this guy kills. He kills 600 of them. And I don't know how long it takes me to kill the 600. I don't want to presuppose he does it all in one setting. I'm not saying he can. The Lord can do mighty things. I don't, I don't doubt what you're going to see other stories that are pretty amazing. But what we do know is that he's named after Canaanite goddess, his name is not Israelites, and he kills the Philistines. And that's interesting when you think about how God starts using the unexpected. So let's come to point of application here. Othniel's the expected. Othniel is son of the promised land, relative of Caleb, you know, you know, we already know he's a proven soldier in battle. Othniel makes sense. But after Othniel, you're going to notice stuff stops making sense. And God starts using people you would never suspect. And he starts using people that might be considered anywhere from... There, there's a reason why he specifies about him being a left-handed man. There's something there. He specifies. He, he brings something out in that text to say, I'm going to do something you would never expect. Our God is all about using the unexpected. Let's just worship for a second. Can we just worship together and talk about times where our God does the unexpected? Let's just start with Scripture. Let's start with the Bible. Can we just start there? Right now we know that God uses a left-handed man to kill a fat king, wipes out 10,000 Moabites, crushes them under his feet, and then turns around and uses a guy that, that's probably not even fully Israelite to wipe out, he's a, he's a son of a Canaanite goddess, to wipe out the Philistines. That's not expected. She's not expected. I mean, you think of people we expect... We expect the Jason Bournes. We expect, you know, the, you know the, the James Bonds. We expect the people that, you know, if you were going to design the ultimate warrior, it probably wouldn't have been a guy that could have been disabled in his right arm. If you're going to pick the ultimate warrior for the U.S., it's probably not going to be some guy from another country fighting on our behalf. You know what I mean? We're going to pick the elite of our own nation. We're going to tell our stories. But God's all about raising up the people you'd never suspect. Like, like a boy, when Samuel shows up, it's the youngest in the family. So much so that Jesse doesn't even think they should even look at it. Jesse, got any other boys now? No. Oh, yeah, I forgot. It was one other kid. Yeah, he, he was out in the field somewhere. Who is it? David, David, David. David's my boy. God's all about using the unexpected. Give me some more stories. Let's just worship for a second from the text. When God does, uses the unexpected. Who else? Which story do you want? Huh? Rahab. Rahab, prostitute. Great story. Great story. God using the unexpected. Ruth, not even an Israelite, yet she's for helping produce the lineage of Jesus, a Moabite. God does the unexpected. What else? Oh, uh, yeah. Somebody else? Gideon. Huh? Gideon. We're going to find out Gideon here a little bit. But his, you know, his, his tribe, fame is the least in Israel. His tribe is, you know, his fame is the least in his tribe, and he's the least in his family. I mean, you can't get any lower on the proverbial pecking order than Gideon. Okay? He's as low as you get. Who else? All. Oh. Oh, how in the world God chooses to use the man who kills Christians to write more of the Bible than we can even know? I mean, it's just amazing. Do you think about it? Joseph, the man's in prison. The man is sexually assaulted. gets thrown in jail for something he doesn't do. He's human trafficked, for crying out loud. He spends all of his best years in jail. And then he saves the nation. Yeah, Joseph. Who else? When else does God use the unexpected? Oh, great story. When God uses the unexpected. Well, Mary, young girl, 
sweet girl. Who would have ever suspected that God would choose to bring this vulnerable infant into the world? You want to talk about God doing the unexpected. I, I would tell you if I was God's strategist, bringing an infant into the world through the womb of a 16-year-old girl in the middle of a stable probably isn't your best strategy, God. But God's all about doing the unexpected. What else? I just said, like a lamb. Like a lamb. When else does God do the unexpected? I think God doesn't expect that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the beautiful thing is, you know you, and you know you're not all that. <laughs> you know you, and you know you're not perfect. You know you, and you know you're screw up. You know you, and you put on your best face in this room. But you know you. You know your weakness. You know your insecurities. You know your self-doubt. You know that your self-conscious things that make you nervous about yourself. You know the things about you that you think, oh man, if people really knew my insecurities, things I struggle with. And man, in, in our weakness, what? Man, he has been strong. He shows his strength in our weaknesses. And God chooses to use the, the lowly things of this world to surprise this world, doesn't he? He chooses to use the weak things of this world to show his strength. Church, I'm telling you that we are the unexpected. We're the tribe of unexpected. We're the people of the unexpected. I mean, you look in this room. This world would underestimate. But what we forget sometimes, what they forget sometimes, is that inside of us resides the Spirit of God. Inside of us resides the power of God. And one thing I know is that God loves to use the unexpected. Even a little dinky church out of the middle of cow pasture crying out loud. Doesn't God love using the unexpected? My question for you is this, as we wrap up, and I'd like to give you challenges to think about. No matter where you are at your age in life, one thing I know is that God uses people of all ages to do bold things for His kingdom. Whether some of those crazy stories that happen are 16-year-old girls who carry in their womb the Lamb of God. <laughs> That's a pretty crazy thing. Pretty crazy thing. Or Caleb says, I may be 80-some years old, but I can take the hill country. Love that story. Love that story. What would happen if you just said, God, do the unexpected through me. I want to be your servant. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. Do the I give you permission to do the unexpected for me. I want you to do something that people would look at me and they think, wow. Maybe the, maybe the people actually know your story, and I don't know your story. Maybe your story is so like, whoa, God did what through them? No way. Do you know their story? Maybe your family would feel that way. Maybe they'll say that you were too young or that you were too old or that you were, I don't know. To Ehud, I don't know, to Eglon. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to say about you. Maybe, maybe there's just this beautiful place where God can say, I would like to bring salvation. I know salvation comes through Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'd like to bring salvation to different people through you. People who are oppressed. People who are... We're going to wrap up with this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Try not to preach. I get excited. Appreciate you guys being gracious with me as I teach this. Especially it's my first time ever teaching adults. I'm loving it. You guys are fun. I want to just kind of... Uh, there we are. 
I'm going to start. We've got a little bit of time. Oh, man, there's a really cool thing I want to show you and I forgot. Ah, we'll wrap up with this. We don't have enough time. I only got four minutes left. If you want to go on a tangent next week, if we have time, uh, remind me to talk to you about this whole fat man thing because there's an amazing story that comes from that. Uh, from the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. One of those mind-boggling stories where God talks about another fat man and it's a total tangent, but it's eye-opening and amazing. But I don't have time. I want to wrap up with this because we're, we're kind of in a good stride talking about God didn't expect it. It says, therefore, I want to verse 7 of chapter of 2 Corinthians 4. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. We're not crushed, perplexed, but we're, you know, uh, not, uh, I don't know, that's my lost train of thought. Um, not in despair. We're persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed because we care about the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus may be revealed. And he goes on later on in the chapter, down to about verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, and inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles will reveal in us an eternal glory that always and all. So we don't fix our eyes on what's seen, we fix our eyes on what's unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And he goes on to the next verse, into chapter 5. And he says, Now the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Contrast your mind between a tent and a building. Folks, well, y'all preoccupied with tents. Seriously. Don't be preoccupied with tent. You got a building from God, man. Cry out loud. Live. Let God do the unexpected. Let him, let him destroy the tent. Who cares? You got a building. You got something to look forward to. He says, Now the earthly tent we live disturbed. We have a building from God not built by, uh, by human hands. Uh, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Longing to be clothed our heavenly dwelling. I feel that most when I step on a scale in the morning. Um, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be clothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He skips on down to verse 8. He said, verse 7, he says, We live by faith, not by sight. And he says, For we're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him. That's the key word. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 19. We're going to pick up speed now. He says, Since then, we know what is the fear of the Lord. Uh, we try to persuade men. And here's why I'm encouraging you, and I want to empower you and solicit you to be children of the unexpected. To realize that you're part of an unexpected kingdom. That God loves to take the lowly things of this world, people from southwest Missouri... You know, it's not like, like you look at it in, in, in this state, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, you're from Java. And it, you're not even from Java, you're from Ornoga. You're not even from Ornoga, you're from Next City, crying out loud. You know what I mean? Just the progression. You can almost see it going backwards for a second. I'm, and I'm not trying to pick on it. I grew up here. If you're offended by that, I've lived here most of my life. I live a mile from Next City, so I get it. But the point I'm trying to make is that God does. He takes lowly things. People have never been expected does amazing things. Not just in churches, but in individuals. So I pray you make your goal to, to persuade men. And I want to skip all the way down. And it says, uh, verse 18, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And wait a second. You, inside you is this, this seed, this kernel, the gospel as it's been planted in your heart. And you've been given this ministry of reconciliation. You're more than just an employee. 
You're more than just a relative. You're more than just a mom, more than just a dad. You're more than just a, you know, a husband. You're more than just a wife. You're more than just an employee. You're more than just your social security number. You're more than just the car you drive and the house you live in. You carry inside this, you know, this treasure, this, inside this jar of clay. What you carry inside of you is a minister of reconciliation. And the fact that God... In the same way that you get utterly amazed that he would choose to place this baby in the womb of a 16-year-old, my question for you is, how utterly crazy is it that he chooses to place the ministry of reconciliation inside of you? You carry the power inside of you. Very similar to how Mary carried the power of life inside of her. Be people of the unexpected. Allow the power to be unleashed in you. Allow the gospel to come forth from your life, from your body. Allow him to say, God, do the unexpected in me. I mean, it's just a tent, for crying out loud. It's, i got a building from God. As long as I've got this ministry residing inside of me, God, do the unexpected. Use me to bring salvation in the same way you use Othniel and Eva and Shamgar. Moves on. And it says, uh, That God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors. Wow. As though God, as though God were making his appeal through us. I mean, honestly, folks, if you were going to choose how God made his appeal to the world, would you choose us? <laughs> would you choose us? I don't know, man. The beautiful thing is God's message has always been the same, and so has his method. And his method has always been men. Men and women. And we carry in us the unexpected. We carry the spirit of God, the power of God, the message of God. And we look at these guys and what they do in Oxcode, my question is, Instead of killing 600 Philistines, carry the message of reconciliation and say, you know what, I've kind of decided. With the rest of the life I've got left, I'd like to lead about 600 people to Christ. I think we'll do that. I want to choose to do that. I think that's what we'll do. He finishes, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as God will make his appeal through us. We employ on Christ's behalf. We reconcile to God. God made him. Talk about the unexpected. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that him will not become the righteous of God. Love judges. Love judges. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this book. We're done. I got no fancy wrap up. We're going to get into Deborah next week. Love, love, love opportunities to talk about how God uses powerful women to do powerful things. So, Deborah next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.